As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is Mary Todd Lincoln. President Lincoln said that you could fool all of the people some of the time. And some of the people all of the time. But he always said that you can never fool Professor Buzzkill. So don't even try. Let's join the good professor as he talks history, busts myths, and takes names. I'm getting a little hot and bothered just thinking about it. Okay, here we are with Professor Sarah Myloff. Professor, how are you? Thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here. And uh, I, I had to walk across the UVA campus a, a long way, and I started wheezing, and I started to remember all my great aunts and great uncles who were wheezing because of cigarettes and the cigarette, their cigarette addiction. You're very kind to come on the show today and talk about your new book, The Cigarette of Political History. And I found it absolutely gripping because of so many things I learned. But I thought today we could talk a little bit about that famous 1964 Surgeon General's Report. It was sort of a big, you know, boulder in the ocean of, of health and, and smoking in, in the United States anyway. January 1964, the Surgeon General makes a public report on the dangers of smoking. Was it the first official report of smoking hazards? Actually, no. There was a report issued the previous decade in 1957 mm -hmm. um, by Eisenhower's Surgeon General, a man named Leroy Burney. Um, that report assessed more than a dozen studies from a handful of countries, basically the state of the knowledge, uh, the state of the field as it existed at the time. And what that report found was still quite significant. It found that lung cancer was five to 15 times more likely among smokers than in non-smokers. It found that quitting would reduce the likelihood of cancer. But we don't talk about this report. We don't hear about this report because ultimately the public health service, which was behind the report, basically soft-pedaled its findings so as not to ruffle the feathers of organized medicine. It didn't want to go too far in articulating what public health as opposed to individual doctors ought to counsel when it when it came time to say whether or not somebody should smoke. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, and crucially, and this is also why we don't hear much about the 57 report. 
In the early 1950s, the tobacco industry already had begun to conceive of its disinformation apparatus, beginning as early as 1953. In 1957, folks in public health knew that their uh, resources were no match for those of the tobacco industry. And so it wasn't until 1964 where the construction of the report um, was a much more meticulously crafted political document um, did the Surgeon General really have the opportunity to kind of match um, uh, uh, the the public relations apparatus of the tobacco industry at the oh, time. Oh, I see. So you have this problem because you can set out all the information, but of course, if the tobacco industry you know, uh, tries to negate it completely with, with all their resources... Is not going to go anywhere. Precisely, which is why the construction of the 1964 report, by, by which I mean the actual selection of committee members, the way uh-huh. in which its release was staged um, on a Saturday so as to <laughs> have right. to, to minimize disruption in the stock market the least amount, but to maximize coverage in the Sunday papers the greatest amount, why that was so significant and really skillfully thought through uh, by the Surgeon General at the time, uh, a man by the name of Luther Terry. Okay, so Buzzkillers will put a link to the video of this happening, or, or the old video of this happening. All of this stuff was done not just whenever they could. They actually planned and said, hey, we better do it on Saturday. We better do this. We better do that, because they knew what the public reaction and industrial reaction, things like that would be. Every aspect of the 64 report was meticulously thought through. From the selection of 10 committee members, five mm-hmm. of whom were smokers, five <laughs> of whom were non-smokers, Uh, to authorizing public health agencies like the Heart and Lung Association, um, the Cancer Society, the Tuberculosis Association, later known as um, the Lung Association, uh, with veto power over any uh, potential member of the committee, to allowing the Tobacco Institute, the tobacco lobby, veto power over any potential member of the committee. Every single one of these choices was made with the goal in mind of producing a politically uh, pristine document that could later be used to authorize regulation of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed, and this is one of the great quotes in the book, throughout 1963, the panel convened in a room at the National Library of Medicine. The air was thick with smoke and the table was covered in papers and ashtrays. Even the Surgeon General's report was the product of a smoke-filled room. Well, this is exactly the point that it was Terry's great genius to realize that by Surgeon General Terry, Surgeon General's Terry, Surgeon General Terry's great genius to realize that he could preempt the inevitable objections of the tobacco industry by giving them veto power and by mandating that half of the participants (laughs) in the process themselves would be smokers. You couldn't say that the the committee itself was biased if half of the people uh, who began the process in uh, 1962 were themselves smokers. I should note, though, that by the end of the process, uh, only one remained smoking, and one year oh. after the report was issued, he himself was diagnosed with lung cancer. Oh, so while, while they were going through all the science and all the, all the data and everything, a lot of these people dropped their habit, or at least tried to. Terry himself switched from being um, a cigarette smoker to smoking only an occasional pipe. <laughs> and I noticed that uh, in some of the newspaper reports uh, of, of what happened and in, 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 your, in your upcoming book, they talked about how the room was cleared, or the room was pasted with uh, 
with posters saying no smoking, no smoking all around. Perhaps the first instance than that, you know, of that happening in Washington. But this is in reference to the um, auditorium uh, in which the report was itself released on mm-hmm. um, Saturday, January 9th, 1964. Inside that auditorium, uh, no smoking signs were hastily affixed to <laughs> Uh, the walls in inside the auditorium. I but, shouldn't laugh. This is this is a deadly uh, issue, but still deadly serious. And there is probably a good number of reporters in the room who were themselves scared into dropping the habit after reading the report, which oh yeah, uh, of course stated in no uncertain terms that smokers had a nine to tenfold risk uh, for developing lung cancer as opposed to non-smokers, among other um, significant findings. No, nine to tenfold. That's enormous. That's not just saying, you know, twice as much. Or... No, and what subsequent research um, has proven is that actually smokers are more likely to die, uh, that heart disease is actually the greater killer of smokers than lung cancer, though lung right, cancer yeah. was um, the focus of the initial report. So what was the immediate reaction out in the country? I mean, here I hear stories of, of course, the signs go up in, in the press conference room and then... And then there were other people covering it outside who gradually started putting their cigarettes out as the as the certain general went on. But what happens out in, you know, wide America? Well, initially after the report is released, tobacco sales uh, declined by about 20 percent during the first half of 1964. But by 1965... People have seemed to people seem to have forgotten, or perhaps the the addiction was simply too mm-hmm. strong, mm-hmm. and um, sales have rebound by the middle wow. of the 1960s. You don't start to see really steady declines um, of nearly a percent a year and uh, reduction in smoking prevalence until the early 1970s. Hmm. So even though the kind of education and knowledge is certainly out there and it is sinking in. Yeah. Uh, almost double the number of people agree with the idea that cigarettes cause cancer by the late 1960s than agreed with that idea um, a decade earlier in the 1950s. So, you know, people do have an awareness, but awareness is not all it takes to break uh, not only a personal addiction, but a powerful social habit. Because after all, many of the buzzkillers won't remember, won't know because they weren't born. You know, it used to be almost unusual at parties not to smoke or they're not to be not to be a billion ashtrays around in the smoke-filled rooms that was why they're called smoke-filled rooms yeah i mean the social default was acceptance of smoking now the actual figures were never greater than 50 percent and that was only among men it was not among women so you know smoking prevalence um, when the report came out was about 42 percent overall in the population but 42% in a room still gives you the feeling that that is the social oh, default. Oh, sure. Yeah, and, and, and the smoke is going everywhere. Right. The smoke is ubiquitous, even if the number of people who are actually engaging in the habit are not. Yeah. I mean, not to, for instance, my parents were very anti-smoking and didn't have ashtrays in the house as sort of a sign to, to people when we had a house, when they had house parties. You know, don't light up. But that was very, very rare. Right. It was a form of protest. Yeah. Oh, I never thought it was a form of I'll have to tell them over a Christmas dinner, you know, that that uh, that they were they were early protesters. Well, so apart from the obvious addictions and people have it, having to go back to their cigarettes, what what happens more broadly in, in cigarette economy, if you will? 
So cigarette sales fall by about 20% during the first half of 1964, Mm -hmm. though it's important to remember that this is only in comparison to 1963, which had been a banner year for the industry. Um, Oh, okay. Actually, that year, Americans smoked enough cigarettes for every um, American adult to have more than half a pack a day. So it dips, but it's dipping in comparison to an all-time high. Um, Mm -hmm. People were afraid. This is why smoking the sales of cigarettes dip. The headlines were obviously scary. And the Surgeon General's report was kind of the lead story on numerous nightly newscasts and radio broadcasts. That's right. But by 65, really, the industry had rebounded. Um, It reported record sales and the highest profits in the industry. Um, The figures of adult smoking prevalence don't really start to budge in a major way until the 1970s, until the early 1970s. Um, So that kind of steady decline in per capita consumption, which we've seen since then, um, does not happen really until 1973 when it begins to decline at a rate of um, nearly a percentage point annually. So did this sort of... Um, cause doctors or convince doctors or convince health experts to say, look, this really, really is addictive because it's not dropping at the rates we thought it would? Well, certainly when it came when it came to what doctors thought, mm-hmm. the Surgeon General's report was pivotal. Right. It, there were very few doctors who did not counsel their patients to quit smoking uh, after the report came out. And that actually was pretty significant because in the 1950s, doctors were some of the smokingest Americans. <laughs> smokingest, <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, around. Um, so in terms of one-on-one counseling, absolutely. Now, as to the question about addiction, which is clearly how we understand um, the cigarette today and the language that we use um, to describe the effect of nicotine today, the 64 report actually hedged on the language of addiction. It said oh. that smoking should be viewed as a habituation uh, rather than an addictive behavior. And so what, what, does, does, what does habituation mean in, in, rather than addiction? Yeah, so in the 1960s, the idea of addiction centered a lot more around the social pathologies or problems that came from engaging in certain behaviors. So one would be addicted to um, alcohol or heroin if it in, if it ruined uh, your professional life, oh, your work, okay. or your family life. And because society was centered around the acceptability of yeah. smoking, oh, cigarettes yeah. simply were not understood as addictive in quite the same way. At least, and this is crucial, not by all of the members of the Surgeon General General's report. Yeah. Remember, the idea of this document was to produce something that was going to hold up to political, even more than or equal to <laughs> scientific scrutiny. Yeah, so every right. single member of that panel who came from all different backgrounds had to agree on the language. So they deliberately did not weigh in on whether or not uh, the cigarette should be labeled addictive mm-hmm. um, as that term was used at the time. Okay, so we know that the smoking rebounded after the Surgeon General comes out with his report, so and, and the addiction become becomes clear. And we'll talk about more about the social effects of that and what happens after 1960 when we get back from this station ID break. Okay, we're back with Professor Sarah Mylov on talking about the 1964 Surgeon General's report about the dangers of smoking and then what happened, how long it took to percolate throughout the country, and on and on and on. The first thing it seems to me would would be, Professor, that 
government agencies would jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, you know, this this is something bad. We need to do something about this. What what happens? Well, in a sense, that is what happens. Um, The Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, was the first agency to jump into the fray after Mm -hmm. the report comes Mm -hmm. out. And that agency proposed a very strongly worded label that it proposed would appear on cigarette packages, but also on TV and radio advertisements. Once the FTC proposed that, Congress sprung into action (laughs) with a watered-down proposal of its own. So what ultimately passes in response to the Surgeon General's report is a 1965 labeling act that substituted the FTC's strong wording— And the FTC's package wording would have been, smoking is a health hazard. The Surgeon General has found that cigarette smoking contributes to mortality from disease and the overall death rate. So there's nothing ambiguous there. That's very strong. It is a health hazard. Yeah. It contributes to mortality. And the word death would have appeared on all cigarette packages. It substitutes that language with the blander, cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health. Mm. At the same time, Congress also prevents the FTC from regulating cigarettes for the next four years. So for many advocates for public health and for the public interest more generally, this episode highlighted why such activists in the 60s and 70s looked toward regulatory agencies rather than Congress um, for the representation of non-commercial interests. Oh, okay, okay. So I see that because it's never going to get through Congress because of tobacco lobby and what and what and whatnot. But it, the regula- regulatory agencies might have enough power on their own in the executive branch. Exactly. So during the mid 1960s, in particular, tobacco had quite a grip on Congress. Remember, this is a time of democratic domination of both houses of Congress. Mm-hmm. And democratic party, yeah. Exactly. And for LBJ specifically, uh, he was very, he did wanted to do nothing to further antagonize um, sitting congressmen from southern states. Yeah, we he, should remind the buzzkillers that now it's very different, but the South was solidly Democratic back then, and the way it's almost solidly Republican now, and that that's all. a lot of it is tobacco. Absolutely. Nearly all uh, tobacco state representatives were Democrats. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Joseph Califano, who was an advisor to Johnson and ironically, would take on the industry when Califano later served as uh, Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare under Carter and would lose his job um, (laughs) basically because he came out too strongly against tobacco and Mm. uh, the tobacco industry um, sought and uh, got his scalp. Uh, Califano recalled that there was only so much we could do to take on the South in explaining why Johnson wasn't more forthright in basically issuing any kind of statement in support of the Surgeon General's report. Oh, so it's not just the tobacco industry, and it's not just the fact that it's the um, tobacco uh, farmer, the, the strength of tobacco farmers throughout the South. It's that all they're also Democrats in their, Johnson's party, so Johnson can't turn against them, so to speak, as strongly as, as you might expect. Uh, even more than that, some oh. of Johnson's closest intimates were representatives of the tobacco industry. Oh. Um, I mean, in in a way, it's very fitting. You know, Johnson himself was the master of the smoke-filled room, <laughs> and he operated quite comfortably in situations where well-organized representatives of industry worked with the government to make regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, 
he was close with Abe Fortas, a Washington mm-hmm. lawyer. Fortas represented Philip Morris. And two weeks after the Surgeon General's report, um, excuse me, two weeks after the Cigarette Labeling Act is passed, something Fortas really wanted to happen because remember it was a watered down uh oh yeah, a watered yeah, yeah, down yeah, bill yeah, yeah. johnson nominated fortas to the supreme court uh, um perhaps even more telling was johnson's relationship with a man um a very famous democratic politico and insider uh named earl clements who was a mm-hmm. uh Kentucky Democrat who actually served as party whip in the Senate when Johnson ruled the Senate in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. During the 60s, Clement was Clements was the president of the Tobacco Institute, so the actual tobacco lobby. Goodness me! <laughs> and Clements' daughter was actually Lady Bird Johnson's press secretary. So Johnson was very comfortable operating in this kind of clubby insider Washington world, and indeed yeah. he was threatened uh, in in all sorts of arenas uh, by the idea of the public interest coming into Washington and disrupting uh, normal strategies of representation. Do we know if Northern Democrats were different than the Southern? I mean, were they pushing Johnson for, oh, we need to health that we need to uh, put regulations on and then Southern Democrats were rebelling, so to speak? I don't think that in 1965, the constituency in Congress Mm -hmm. for stronger um, labeling was uh, that widespread. The, right, right, the real right, exception right. to that is um, an Oregon senator named Maureen Newberger, who oh, was okay. very um, early in condemning uh, the way in which Congress was, you know, uh, proclaimed fealty to the tobacco industry. But it was, it would have been unusual. Mm. She was unusual um, in the Senate for holding that position. Yes, this part of this part of your book, you, uh, this section, one of the chapters, you call "regulating among friends." I thought well, that was a wonderful way of explaining how, you know, this how difficult it must have been, even if you were very anti-tobacco, to try to get this through all the uh, get this approved by all the people that you knew and worked with all the time. The power brokers in Congress of the 1960s mm-hmm. were all steeped in the way the ways of Washington at the time, which. Mm very much channeled power through well-established organizations and institutions. And the Tobacco Institute was one of those organizations and institutions. There was not a robust public interest or public health lobby uh, at the time yet. So it was, it took a lot of activism, a lot of creative activism to break in uh, to Washington. And indeed the most successful um, types of activism uh, as related to anti-tobacco actually didn't go through Congress at all. They went through agencies and they uh, occurred at the local level yeah, precisely yeah. because of tobacco's power within Congress. Well, I certainly remember when, you know, and this was as late as the 80s, some states and some locales weren't as, as forward thinking in, in restricting smoking, public smoking, public places. You know, California was maybe the first to go totally smoke-free and then New York City was famously lagging behind. Uh, you know, that, that was very, it wasn't a national ban at all. Oh, there's still not a national yeah, ban. Right, to, yeah. Indoor smoking is still regulated by a kind of a patchwork of uh, local and state laws, as well as just voluntary um, mm-hmm. decisions by mm-hmm. private businesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that sort of really is the, the almost the uber definition of something that's regulating among friends. You're regular. You're, you're dealing with trying to deal with people who are whose livelihoods are, are are based on this. But then, of course, you've got to deal with, in theory, deal with the public interest. Absolutely. 
I think lots of people assume that that smoking habits and restrictions and laws kind of happened overnight. But what you what you've been telling us is that it, t- it took a long time. It was very complicated. Uh, you know, didn't wasn't just immediate when the Surgeon General's report came out. How long did it actually take to happen? How long? Obviously, twenty nineteen. You know, that's a long time from nineteen sixty eight. But when did when did th- when did smoking really become unusual in public? Hmm. I'd say by the mid-1970s, mm-hmm. in certain areas of the country, smoking goes from being the social default, that is, you, one can expect right, to smoke right. in a number of places, to not being stigmatized per se, but a smoker might have to question whether or not he can engage in his habit um, sure. publicly. For example, um, by the early 1970s, smoking... Uh, smoking restrictions are in place on airplanes. So you can't Mm -hmm. smoke anywhere you want in an airplane. You have to sit in the smoking section. Similar restrictions um, also exist on buses. And by the mid-1970s, hundreds of cities around the country have passed local ordinances Mm -hmm. that restrict, not ban, but restrict where smoking can occur within a city in terms of um, shared public spaces. So... Mm -hmm. um, parks, theaters, mm. libraries, places like that. So where do we stand today? Uh, it seems that, that especially when, you know, you spend a lot of time in other places in Europe and other places that America was the first place to really go smoke free. Where does it kind of stand today? So when you look at overall trends in cigarette consumption, there's a lot to uh, be proud of in terms of this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, peak consumption 65 years ago stood at more than 40% of the population In 2016, that figure was at about 16%. So a real tremendous reduction in smoking. Now, along the way, smoking habits have become significantly more classed. That is to say, now one can predict who smokes by looking um, to a great extent at the level of education and one's income. Mm. So at mid-century, smoking certainly did not have the kind of lower class connotation right, that right. it has, yeah, 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 that it, yeah, it certainly has today. Um, today, though, still 40 million Americans smoke cigarettes. It's still the top cause of preventable death in the United States. 40 million, wow. 40 million. And each year, you know, upwards of 480,000 Americans die every year of smoking-related disease. And that still accounts for about a fifth of all deaths every year. So we can look back with great satisfaction. This is certainly a story of uh, a public health triumph, but it's not, it's nothing to be taken for granted. And there's still progress that can, uh, that, that remains to be seen. Okay. We should tell buzzkillers out there that, that your book, your new book, The Cigarette, A Political History, which is a great way to approach it. uh, The Cigarette, A Political History is coming out by Harvard University Press later this year. Yes, I'm glad you liked the title. It wasn't my original idea, oh. but I, I give great credit to the press for coming up with that one. I was going to call it puffing in politics, but I didn't, <laughs> didn't know whether that. No, I think be. I think um, they like to avoid puns. <laughs> well, it's going to be in the Buzzkill bookshelf as soon as we can get the pre-order, you know, approval or what it is, whatever it is from Harvard University Press. So all that remains is for me to say thank you very much, Professor. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And to tell the buzz killers out there, don't smoke. And we'll talk to you next week.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Oh, 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 o